Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not blown. Time for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one rock. Rock in the road. What's the problem? Send the police! Hey guys, don't be a hero, mate. And I said I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams' hands for a coffee table and just, and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who's, whose life would be... I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Senior Knucklebutt? Well, Tara, if that is your real name. Yeah, it actually is. I'm going to talk about an Australia Day party that went horribly wrong after an argument about a barking dog. Australia Day! Okay, for those of you not in the know, that mostly consists of people um, barbecuing meat and drinking from, well, at least the early afternoon, if not earlier. Yeah, it's a day drinking kind of day, public holiday. Yeah, mm, yeah, lots of times. drinking, the smell of barbecues in the air. Well, it can lead to some biffo later on. It can lead to some biffo. So, Tara, what will you be banging on about? <laughs> banging on about, so disrespectful. This week, I looked into Carl Robert Brown, an American teacher who massacred eight people and injured another three in a Miami, Florida welding shop in 1982. Oh, Florida, 1982. That's a nice place to visit. Yeah, yeah, actually, I, I totally would. Hmm. Well, let's stop by there later. Oh, in our time a, machine. And stay a while. Yeah, <laughs> some, somewhat of a while. Let's not go to this welding shop. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. So, Tara. Hey, Barney. Hey, Tara. Hey, Barney. I think it's about time we got murdery. All right. If I could do that thing where you, like, click your hands and you, like, crack your knuckles, I would totally be doing that. But instead, I'm just lamely doing it near the mic and there's, like, nothing cool wow, happening. Wow, that's some good visual stuff going on there. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Listen to me podcast. Watch me go. I'm completely naked underneath my clothes. It's true. 
Carl Robert Brown was born on November 26, 1930 in Chicago, Illinois. He was always very patriotic growing up, so it didn't come as a surprise to anyone when he joined the Navy at a young age. USA, USA. Exactly. His time in the Navy wasn't marred by any negative incidents or suspiciously strange behaviour, and he was honourably discharged in 1954. That's an acceptable discharge. Well, it's the best kind of discharge, the honourable kind, because the is. others, a lot of them, not super honourable. Well, yeah. I mean, mm. anal discharge is pretty dishonourable. <laughs> you don't, get a, you don't, don't get a medal for it, do you? Don't you don't get a medal no, for it. No, you don't. No you, one... get, you get a frowny face. <laughs> From no your one doctor. cast a statue of your profile in bronze for anal discharge, do they? Well, no. No, not in bronze. Although slightly built, Brown held himself, and now he's called Brown, oh God. It's, it's just all, do all roads lead to poo here? I'm down with the brown. I know you are. That's the problem. <laughs> I'm falling into your poo trap one <laughs> podcast at a time. <laughs> save me, people, save me. His name's Brown. It's all right. No, and that wasn't funny before, but it is now. Although slightly built, Brown held himself with a rather formal military bearing and had a reputation for being very militaristic. Short back and sides, eh? Yeah, trim those sideburns. Really? No, no long hair and a beard. Oh my god, he would think you were the biggest, stinkiest hippie, and you're not even a hippie. No, no. He would have thought you were. In 1955, he moved from his native Chicago to Florida to attend the University of Miami. He studied accounting and history, graduating in 1957. I hope he studied them together. This is an abacus. A studious man, he also obtained a master's degree in education from East Carolina College. In 1961, Brown had written in his application for a teaching job that he always enjoyed being with younger people and felt that he could benefit these younger people with his abilities. Well, it's always good to be around younger people. You can suck the youth out of them. Yeah, yeah, it's a beauty secret. Yes. (laughs) It's what keeps your beard so thick and shiny. Well, actually, I use uh, Captain Moonlight beard oil for that, actually. Really? Yeah. Is that it? Oh, is that, that's not a thing yet, though, is it? No, it will be. <laughs> hey, uh, we have some cool news to tell you soon, but not uh, today. Not today. In 1962, he got a full-time job as a history teacher at Hialeah Junior High School and also taught accounting at Miami-Dade Community College from 1964 to 1970. Mm, let, Teaching all the time. Mm, let the good times roll. Oh, yes. Teaching accounting. <laughs> Teaching all the stuff. Brown was married twice and had three children. His first wife had died and his second marriage disintegrated after his wife Sylvia noticed his deteriorating mental state and employed him to seek treatment for it, but he refused to do so. Oh, sounds like a straight up and down guy, but he's having some uh, mental health issues, hey? Yeah. So what year was this? Oh, okay. Um, so when that happened was around... Probably the late 70s. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people slipping through the cracks there with their mental health. Well, yeah, yeah. and being, a, a, a well, a man and someone who comes from, like, a pretty strict military background, he might have been, he might have been Sucking less likely to, to seek help and just trying to power through. Yeah. After Sylvia left him and won primary custody of their sons, Brown's untreated mental health issues continued to grow. Once an affable character, Brown became more angry and ranty and alienated himself from his social circle, preferring to be alone. His appearance also became more gaunt and unkempt, leading a neighbour to describe him as looking as if he were 80 years old when he was only in his late 40s. 
Concerned about her father's state of mind, his daughter tried to have him hospitalised, but the place she wanted to get him into would only accept him as a voluntary patient, and he refused. He's going, hell no, there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I like collecting aluminium cans. (laughs) No, seriously, he did. Really? Yeah. Though his neighbours and tenants said Brown was a helpful and kind man, they also noted that he regularly walked into other people's yards early in the morning and woke them up by yelling, United States! United States! United States! Aha! I was right. You were very right. (laughs) You hit the United States on the head with that one earlier. Gunshots were often heard coming from his house late at night, and on one occasion he was observed picking grapefruits from a neighbour's tree dressed only in his underpants. Uh, what, was his tree, like, hanging over no, his fence? No, no, no. He put on his tidy whities and he wandered into their yard and he just started picking grapefruits. Well, no one wants to see your gaudily stained lub-lub containers, do they? I don't believe they did. No. And as I said earlier, um, he collected aluminium cans, so, well, there was that too. Not to, to trade them in, no, you know, squash them no. and get a few pennies. No. no. I remember I tried doing that as a kid. I collected like 300 aluminium cans and squashed them and put them in a garbage bag, took them down to the recycling centre, and I got like 15 cents and I went, fuck that shit. Yeah, I think we all tried it as kids and we were like, well, that doesn't <sighs> even God's work. For God's sake, man. Also, spent- half of them you have to go across the country to give to hand them in. I spent like an hour doing that. <laughs> <I'm> not- <laughs> and you learned from that day on to never try again. That's right. <laughs> because it doesn't <laughs> pay <Damn> off. straight. <laughs> His tenants, the Avillas, said that he was helpful and kind. They said, I sincerely feel sorry for him. He wasn't a bad person. It was just that he was crazy. Yeah, I'll take those cans off your hands. You don't have to put those in the bin. I'll yeah. take care of those for you. <laughs> oh, and if you uh, if you get any more, you know, just sure. chuck just, them chuck them in my mailbox. Or, just put them in yeah. my mailbox. Don't yeah. crush them. No, 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 no. I want them pristine. Yes. so I can put them on the shelf in my collection. Uh, yeah. The deterioration of his mental state led to significant problems at work. Due to escalating issues at Hialeah Junior High, Brown, who was super racist, which, although a crazy thing to be, had nothing to do with his mental health, was transferred to Drew Middle School in 1981. This was a school where the majority of students were black, so uh, what could possibly go wrong? Crazy racist guy who collects cans. Sounds like a good fit. Yeah, don't you think? No. Um, What alarms (laughs) me a lot about this case is that apparently his blatant racism as a school teacher wasn't seen as a problem. It was just when he went a bit like, a bit too crazy about it. It's the late 70s, you know. Yeah, yeah, they were like, eh, well, at least he's keeping his pants on. Yeah. Brown had been teaching at this point for almost 20 years. For 13 years, he'd been considered a good teacher, but as he became increasingly stranger, his teaching abilities took a nosedive and many students made formal complaints about him. Some students would refuse to attend his classes as he ranted incoherently about his personal problems and topics unrelated to what they were studying. But of course, some kids thought this was a great opportunity to bludge. Oh, yeah. 15-year-old student Gus Matter said... He was off his rocker. All you had to do was come to class, ask one question, and he would talk for the rest of the period just about everything. Yeah. Yeah. He was also known to be ridiculously bigoted, saying threatening things and insulting people of other races. Fellow teacher Arlene Rothenberg said he was very prejudiced, anti-black, anti-Semitic, anti-everything. 
I avoided him. If I talked to him, he would go into a tirade. None of it would make sense. She should have talked to him about cans. He likes cans. He's not anti-can. No, he's very pro-can. He's pro-aluminium can. Pro, pro-can. Yeah. They're nice and silver. He liked the shade. Yeah. Didn't like to put them in brown paper bags at any point. Well, I wonder how you felt about steel cans. Probably hated those. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're not aluminium, and that's a problem. Yeah, there's the problem right there. Uh huh. I know they're both cans, but one can is far yeah. superior to the other can, <laughs> for sure. At Drew Middle School on December 3rd, 1981, Brown had a confrontation with two students who he accused of throwing books. During the argument, Brown talked inappropriately about his sex life and threatened to staple one of the boys' penises before chasing the boys around the school with a loaded stapler. He was speaking inappropriately about his sex life. So is there an appropriate way to talk to students about your sex life? Yeah, you talk about all the awesome lovemaking. I said to my girlfriend, I said, hey, baby. And it just went from there. <laughs> <laughs> you can fill in the gaps. So, like, you're a man, right, Barney? I have been accused of that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever chase your kids around with a stapler while threatening to staple their dicks? Well, I will now. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> it's a good idea. Yeah, I thought you might like uh, that one. I can't see anything. I can't see any downside to this. The school board's director of HR, Pat Gray... I bet she's known as Linda as well. Linda's Pat's short for Linda, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, Pat must be short for Linda if we're talking about HR. Uh, they described this as a classroom incident. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I'll use my Linda from HR voice, yeah? Do it, do it. Business time, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> a classroom incident wherein Mr Brown demonstrated a significant lack of adult judgment, an overtone of sexual fixation and definitive aggression towards students. Comes with a lot of nodding, that voice. A lot of nodding, yes, yeah. Yes, a lot of nodding. <laughs> they pretend to be your friend, but they're not. No, no, they really aren't. <laughs> the school's principal, Octavio Vasidio, wrote, I found Mr Brown to be incoherent and unable to grasp the severity of the situation at hand. I also fear for the safety of the students, since during my conference with Mr Brown, he demonstrated no regret for his actions, pointing to the fact that he is a man... And any man would have reacted the same way. Well, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense, does it? Principal Vasidio noted in his last evaluation of Brown, I find Mr Brown to be a negative force. Today I did a follow-up observation of Mr Brown's second period class and I continue to be alarmed about the potential for disaster in that class. As you can see from today's observation, there is absolutely no discipline or control in that class and I'm concerned for the safety of the students and also Mr Brown. Mm, so what they do, promote him? Fire him? Yeah, they promoted him. They made him head of HR. Um, he went on to say that Brown's class was in total and complete chaos with students talking constantly, wandering around and leaving class without permission. In January 1982, Brown was strongly advised by the principal to seek psychiatric help with the school board's employee assistance program. Well, that sounds fair enough. Well, at this point, yeah. Well, that sounds like a, a good, good way to move forward. Well, Brown reacted to this advice by writing a response in which he suggested that the principal himself should seek the help of the school board's employee assistance program. So it was kind of like, you go see a doctor. No, you go see a doctor. Yeah, yeah, good, good yeah. comeback, Potsy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> the school sent Brown to see a psychiatrist, Dr. Robert A. Wanger. 
Oh, so close to a swear. Who said that Mr. Brown is suffering from rather severe anxiety associated with some paranoid and grandiose ideas and that he also demonstrates a probable thinking disorder. Mm, crazy in the coconut. Yeah, a little bit. He needs some lime. Put it in the coconut. Drink it, drink it all down. Oh, no, that is actually how a lot of people deal with their mental health issues. Yeah, no, don't do that. Yeah, no. Don't I self-medicate. Mean, Get help. Yeah, ideally. Yeah, talk to a friend even, mm. you know. Yeah, do as we say, not as we do, by the yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Wanger wrote that although these issues would affect Brown's work, he believed that he would be able to keep on teaching if given psychotherapy and medication. He also wrote that although he may appear to be rather unusual and disorganised to the people around him, he does not represent a danger to them. That's famous last words. That's like hold my beer, isn't it? It really is. Also, Dr. Wanger, like, did he have a doctorate in interpretive dance maybe? What, jazz ballet? Perhaps jazz ballet. Maybe, Mm. you know, ice cream making. Maybe he wasn't actually a psychiatrist. Although in the the articles I read, they did say he was. I did three years of jazz ballet and I stand by it. A lot of people say it was a waste of time, but... No, not uh, in your case. Though I probably pushed it too much with those two years of tap as well. Oh, yeah. On March 3rd, 1982, Brown was put on forced leave to seek psychiatric help and he agreed to get further treatment from Dr. Wanger. Though in a meeting with HR, Brown said, Wanger wants to study me, that's all. I can cure Dr. Wanger. I will treat him. I will change his seeds. <laughs> He's probably going to swap them out with aluminium cans. Oh, and what, and what did Linda have to say about that? Because Pat is short for Linda. Oh, absolutely. Oh, well, I, I believe she said, well, I put my bra on one boob at a time. And that's how I get through the day, you know, just need to think positive. I put on my, my Grundies, my Reg Grundies, one ball at a time. Oh, well, that's a beautiful image. Thank you, Barney. No, Twelve balls at a time. Sorry. Yeah. Well, you didn't say they were yours. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Brown went on a trip overseas shortly before the shooting in the hopes that a holiday would chill him out but he came back in an even worse condition. He'd ramble about how nothing in the United States stood for anything anymore and started speaking admiringly about Russia and Fidel Castro. Oh, God, where do you go on holiday? April Sun in Cuba. (laughs) Whoa. Snake eyes on the paradise. (laughs) paradise. Yeah, I'm not sure. Where do you go, Canada? (laughs) Dear God. Where do you go, France? (laughs) I'm going to get in so much trouble. (laughs) According to his former wife, Sylvia, Brown asked to return to work two days before the shooting, but his psychiatrist, who later said Brown showed no signs of aggressiveness at that time, refused his request. Ooh. Oh, well, that was a tiny bit of doctoring he did then. Yeah. It was a bit shit. Yes. On August 19, 1982, Brown had a fiery argument with Jorge Castellita, an employee at Bob Moore's Welding and Machine Service. Brown had taken a lawnmower engine he wanted repaired to use to power his bicycle. He was pissed at being charged 20 bucks for the repairs and said the work was badly done. He was also super pissed because they wouldn't let him pay the bill with his traveller's checks. Mm, he, yeah, he should have used PayPal. Yeah, that's... That was great back in the 80s. Finally coming to the conclusion that his complaints were falling on deaf ears, Brown left the shop. 
Before doing so, though, he said that he would come back and kill everybody. Mm. Yeah, but the staff dismissed this threat as the ramblings of a madman who wanted to ride a motorised bicycle. You know, like, do racist uh, teachers dream of electric bikes? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, they do. They, yeah, they probably do. Early the next morning, Brown went to a gun store a few blocks from his house and bought two shotguns, a semi-automatic rifle and ammunition. There was a 72-hour cooling-off period after buying handguns in Dade County, but rifles and shotguns could be bought over-the-counter like chewing gum at the time. Wow. An hour before going completely postal, Brown invited his 10-year-old son to come along and join him in killing a lot of people. And what did the son say? Hell yeah. Yeah, well, see, your Dexter would be into it, but he would assume you meant, like, a computer game and zombies. Oh. Yeah, no, his son was like, you know what, Dad? Like, I like it when we bond, but... Mm, yeah, not that thing. I don't think so. i got better shit to do. He said he was heading to Hialeah Junior High School, but planned to make a stop on the way. After his son declined, Brown donned a Panama hat and took off on his still unmotorised bicycle. Muttering to himself about how shit it was to pedal, he arrived just before 11am at Bob Moore's Welding and Machine Service, carrying one of the shotguns identified as an Ithaca 37 with a pistol grip slung over his shoulder. He made his entrance to the shop through a side door and said, I want to shoot everybody, before opening fire. Brown walked through the business systematically shooting everyone while yelling that he would send them all to Germany. Mm, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Oh, does any of this, man? No. Witnesses said that the gunman first killed six employees in the shop, paused to reload, and then shot five other people who were either outside or nearby. In the end, six of the 11 employees who were there were dead and two more lay dying. Three who were injured made a run for it and managed to wave down a passing motorist who took them to a service station a mile away to call 911. Brown left the store, got back on his bicycle and started cycling towards Hialeah Junior High School. A witness said Brown looked very passive and very nonchalant and wasn't trying to escape. He was just casually leaving the crime scene. Another witness commented that he got on his bike and pedaled off as if he was going for a little stroll. Hmm. Just totally chill. Just whistling. Totally calm, yeah. When Mark Cram, an employee at a neighbouring metal shop, heard about the massacre, he grabbed his thirty-eight revolver and set out to chase down the shooter in his car. Ooh, this is getting interesting. Oh, yeah. Ernest Hammett, an employee at nearby General Metals, said that he ran a block and a half trying to flag down a car to give chase. He stopped the Lincoln Continental driven by Mark Cram and the two set off in hot pursuit of Brown. Ooh, posse formed. Yep. Approximately six blocks away from the crime scene, they caught up with Brown and Cram fired what he said was a warning shot over Brown's head. But the bullet hit Brown in the back. <laughs> Sorry, a warning shot that hit him in the back. Well, okay, so this guy's driving and shooting and, no. you know, I don't know. He might have hit a bump in the road. We he don't know. He might have hit a bump. You mm. know, I wasn't there. Were you there? I wasn't there. All right, then. Apparently, Brown then turned in his bike seat and aimed his shotgun at his pursuers. Worried that he was going to shoot them, they ran him over in the car, crashing him into a concrete light pole. Brown, who still had 20 shells in his pockets, died shortly afterwards, slumped on the side of the road. It was actually the bullet wound that killed him, not the being run over by community-minded vigilantes. 
Oh, wow. That's intense. I know. Isn't that like, what? That's part of what really attracted me to this story. Yeah. So the victims all worked at the welding shop and were identified as 67-year-old Ernestine Moore, who was the mother of the welding shop owner, 78-year-old Magnum Moore, the owner's uncle, 53-year-old crane operator Lonnie Jeffries, 47-year-old store manager Carl Lee, 29-year-old secretary Martha Steelman, 38-year-old machinist Juan Trey Palacios, 44-year-old shop foreman Pedro Vasquez, and 46-year-old welder Nelson Barrios. Brown didn't actually even know most of those people. It's quite a body count. Uh, yeah. It's a, a big business, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, they do welding there. It's, it's a large area. It's in yeah. like an industrial estate. Uh, three others were also wounded but survived. Jorge Casadella, the person who Brown had had the altercation with the previous day, was not in the store at the time. Wow, rusted day off. Look, I'm not sure what the deal was, yeah, but I mean... Maybe he, he called in sick. He, who knows? was a very good time to not be in the shop. Mm, absolutely. Arlene Rothenberg, a teacher at Hylia Junior High, who'd known Brown for nearly 20 years, said, I'm not surprised. He hated everybody. He was a bigot. He should not have been allowed in a classroom. His problems were something that should have been caught a long time ago. After the massacre, police found a cassette tape in Brown's house of him rambling about being the god Logos, a mythological creature he considered to be the controlling force of the universe. In the tape, Brown can be heard saying, This is the Logos speaking. God through me is responsible for the good and bad sounds in your head. Now I shall say a few good words in your head before I return you to the bad sounds in your head. The Logos is the spark of God, the most logical. I am indestructible on earth. Well, that wasn't true, was it? <laughs> no, he's not mm. bulletproof, that's for nah. sure. <laughs> so Tara, I've got yep. a question. Yeah? Those guys that chased him down, were they charged? No, they weren't charged with anything. Yeah, really? Really? Uh, warning shot in the back. <laughs> well, yeah, he warningly shot him in the back. Probably saved a lot of lives, though. He would have definitely oh. continued on to the school. Oh, look, you're not wrong. He would have, yeah, they would have saved lives. Yeah, oh. I mean, I'm not trying to tell everyone to go out there and kill everybody, but you know what? I, I kind of get it. Yeah, I kind of get, get it, it in this case. Like, it, it kind of makes sense. I think when the cops finally got there, they said, look, let's just say that you shot at him as a warning shot and you accidentally hit him in the back. It's entirely possible. <laughs> like, Mark Cram might have been like, oh, look, dude, I was just like, I've got to stop him. I shot him in the back. And they're like, did you? Did you do that? Or, or you know what? I actually think you probably tried to fire a warning shot. But, yeah. you know, yeah, you accidentally got him. I mean, you no. were driving the car. You can't have a good aim when you, maybe there was potholes. Maybe there was potholes. Yeah. You know, who knows mm. quite how that exactly went down. What we do know is he didn't get to shoot anyone else. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Barney. Yes, Tara. You know what time it is? It's true crime nerd time. All right. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Like a haiku about Travis the Monkey. Are you itchy, Tara? 
Always. You can, Always. <laughs> you can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it. We'll read it out. Yeah, so generally we like these to be like a couple of minutes or, you know, like 200 words or so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. a good length. And we've got a corker here from Alex Jimmy Middleton. Alex! And it's about a song. Oh, cool. No one's written about a song yet. So we'll play a little bit of the song afterwards, yeah. but I'll just read it out. Okay, cool. Barney Black and the delightful Tara Sarabin. Oh. I have a true crime nerd time entry for ya. It is a song by a strang Celtic rockers, weddings, parties, anything. It is about a jailbreak back in the convict times. In 1822, there was a prison on the remote west coast of Van Diemen's Land which was designated for those convicts who had committed crimes after arriving in the penal colonies of New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land. Right, so they're like double convicts. So yeah, Van Diemen's Land, for people who don't know, that's Tasmania, the old name for Tasmania. Yep. One day, a group of convicts absconded from a sawyer's detail in the forest. So they were, like, cutting down trees and stuff? Cutting down trees. With the intention of making it overland to Hobart and stealing a ship for England. Oh, right. That's a likely keeper. That's some bold ambition uh-huh. there. Only problem was they ran out of food. Okay, the- so they're still in the bush at this point. And, you know, they're, they're English. They don't know anything about the Australian Right, they don't and- know that they can eat witchy grubs and bird's eggs and, well, possums, possums and-, and, you know, all the billions of other things that are edible there. Well, there would have been thylacines in those days. They're a great band. <laughs> Tasmanian Tigers, <laughs> you knucklehead. Yeah, they're a great band. I mean, they're not together anymore. So <laughs> they're kind of extinct, right? Oh, you're a fool. I know, and only a fool believes. So they ran out of food, Tara. So as you would expect, they would kill and eat the weakest man in the party. Oh my god. I've been to parties like that. Yeah, yeah, me too. I've worked in jobs like that. <laughs> Until there were only two left the Englishman Thornhill and the Irishman Pierce. Eventually, Pierce killed Thornhill with the axe they'd been carrying, and by eating Thornhill's remains, managed to make it to a settled district where an Irish convict shepherd took him in and fed him mutton. Oh, well, mutton... Just as lamb. Well, mutton's got to taste like lamb after all that. <laughs> the first non-human flesh in quite a while for um, the Irishman Pierce. Eventually, Pierce was apprehended and brought to Hobart for trial. Oh, they got him, yeah. He um, sang like a bird. He confessed everything, but the authorities thought the tale was so disgusting that it must be bullshit and that he was covering for his fellow escapees at large in the Tasmanian wilderness. Oh, well. So Pierce was sent back to Macquarie Harbour. Now, here's the kicker. About a year later, Pierce escaped again. He took with him a young, strong and youthful companion. Oh, sexy. Mm. Hey, baby, you want to come and escape with me? I won't eat you unless <laughs> you want me to. Instead of heading overland, they were taking the coastal route. Ah, oh, well, they could go fishing. Route. Sorry. Yeah, come on. <laughs> a passing troop ship saw a fire and alerted the garrison at Macquarie Harbour. They found Pierce dining on his companion. Oh my God, he's addicted to man flesh. I mean, aren't we all? Despite having fish and bread in his possession. <gasps> oh my God, uh, he chose to do it. I was drinking my own pee before the water ran out. <laughs> This was dispatched to Hobart, where he was duly hanged. And then eaten? No. Oh, well, I mean, it would be poetic justice. Well, it's like when they stuff a duck inside a chicken inside a pig. A turducken. Yeah, that's it. That's what they do. Yeah, well, a convict eats a convict. Then you eat the convict that ate the convict. (laughs) Oh, wow. Then yeah, Uh, It's like those Russian dolls. 
Yeah, Mat- Matryoshka. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that is nutty as fuck. This, my children, is the Australian colonial history they never teach you in school. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, let's hear a bit of this song then, yeah, hey? Yeah, for sure. Death or liberty. Now there were six of us together, a jolly hungry crew. And as the days went by, you know, our hunger quickly grew, and some fool muttered, Death or liberty. So that night we made fires out of twigs and out of bark, and our stomachs they kept rumbling all through the night so dark. Wondering, trying to keep ourselves alive. When the sun came up next morning, well, a six had turned to five, and I said, And I tell you, that's a fact But you should have seen the bastard Who was carrying the axe He was a sick man, he had murder in his heart And then we reached the Franklin River It took two days to cross We were wet and almost starving And for food we're at a loss If we were hungry, we had murder on our minds So that night we made fires Out of twigs and out of bark And our stomachs, they were rumbling and what a corker of a song that is. Yeah. And if you want to hear the whole song, we'll put a link in the notes of this show to the YouTube. Yeah, yeah, on our website and On our website, stuff. in the show notes, stuff. Excellent. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Check it out. Wow. And thanks a lot, Alex Jimmy. Yeah, thank you so much. You're the man. AJ Middleton. AJ Middleton. All right, Barney, I need to hear about this Australia Day thing. All right, then. Katrina Megan Whitmore, born in 1983, grew up in the suburbs around Western Sydney. Her upbringing was not ideal and it affected her personality. It always does, doesn't it? Yeah, certainly affected, well, mine and probably everyone's to some degree. Well, Katrina had a short fuse and always had a problem with anger. Over the years, Katrina had a few run-ins with the law and a number of convictions for assault and damaging property. These incidents may appear trivial but are suggestive of a lack of control of her anger and a preparedness to resort to physical violence at a drop of a hat. Oh, Katrina, use your words. Yeah, there are so many of them that are quite powerful, I find. In July 2003, when Katrina was 20 years old, she was arrested again for common assault, 
This time, she said that she had been defending herself from attacks from her partner. Oh, okay, damn. Hmm. Katrina grew up with a sister and four half brothers. She had, it seems, a good relationship with her mother, less so with her stepfather, who spent months at a time away from home. Well, if they didn't get along, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, but you need a good father figure in your life. I didn't have a father figure in my life. I mean, Mm. yeah, ideally. Did you have some good male role models or? Well, I had a stepdad for a while and he was pretty cool. Um, But yeah, he had schizophrenia and when he went off his meds, like things could get pretty, pretty dark and unpredictable. Mm. But um, he was the closest thing I had to a dad growing up. I met my real dad um, 11 years ago. He's a good guy, Vampire Bill. Yeah, Bill's him. pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really have one. By the way, I'm not saying that people shouldn't have one. Although it's funny, there was this school magazine when I was in grade two, and for some reason, someone actually, some kid did this thing like, "Do you what kind of family do you think's best?" And everyone said nuclear family, and I went single parent family, and then I realised I was a freak, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I was seven. But yeah. Of course, it's ideal to have a good dad. Well, just to have one person who's just there for you and to go to bat for you, and you had that. Oh, yeah. Your, your and mom. also, you know what? Single moms, they're both. Your mum, Danielle's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, single parents have to be both, not just single moms, single dads as well. I, hey, I'm one of them. I know it. So Katrina uh, left school at the age of 16 when she was in year 11 and obtained average results in the school certificate although being the bad girl, she frequently wagged. Oh, you didn't even need to be that bad to wag. My friends and I used to constantly wag physical education class down on the riverbank, smoking Winnie Blues. Yeah, for you Americans, that's uh, plain hooky. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it's called. After leaving school, she was kicked out of home uh, because she didn't have a job. Right, okay. Harsh, but, you know... After that, she stayed with her older brothers and at times with friends for some years. She worked as a data entry clerk and started a relationship at this time, but it ended four years later when her partner died from a drug overdose. Oh, God, that would gut you. Leaving her a single parent to a young daughter. She took this death very hard, was diagnosed with depression, but did not comply with taking her antidepressant medication. In August 2008, she began cutting herself, and eventually it got so bad she was admitted to hospital. At the time, she had been using ice and was attempting to withdraw. She would also drink to excess. She occasionally smoked cannabis when she was 16, but by the time she was 17, she was smoking daily. It affects different people in different ways. It really does. After that, Katrina began to use amphetamines and from the age of 23 began smoking ice daily. See, ice, on the other hand, tends to generally affect people in the same way. It's not a good thing for anger problems, that's for sure. Not in the research I've done, no. Her anger problems were made worse by her substance abuse. What? And made really? Her, <laughs> and made her even more likely to act inappropriately. Katrina was close with her older brother, Frederick, who was nine years older than her. His criminal records reveal a conviction for assault in 1996 for which he was fined an assault occasioning actual bodily harm in November 2001 for which he received a Section 9 bond, another conviction for assault in February 2002 for which he was fined, and a conviction in April 2008 for common assault for which he was imprisoned for one month. 
Okay, it makes me, you know, wonder about their upbringing if they both have such issues, but anyway. Well, Tara, Frederick describes his family background as caring and supportive. He moved out of home around the age of 18 when he commenced a de facto relationship. His schooling was uneventful and he did well. Okay. Though in year 10, a life-changing event happened to him. He accidentally dropped a bottle containing petrol over a fire which exploded oh, shit. into flames, causing burns to his body requiring hospitalisation for two months and several months' recovery time at home, which affected his schooling adversely. However, he completed his Year 10 studies and obtained a school certificate. Okay, wow. God, that would really mess up your studies, being out of, out of action for several months. Yeah, I think Frederick was a, a brave teenager. Yeah, and probably a bright one too to still make it through. Although unemployed at various times, Frederick had a good work ethic and was able to secure work for most of the time after leaving school. His one long-term relationship commenced when he was just 17 and it produced 10 children. Oh my God, Frederick, have you heard of a franger? Good point, Tara. Frederick suffered from depression all his life and self-medicated by drinking alcohol excessively. That's the Australian way. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it, but uh, yeah... Pot kettle black motherfucker. <laughs> in 2004, Frederick was placed on a dosage of what a psychologist described as strong medication after he attempted suicide by hanging himself. He was cut down by his 12-year-old son. Oh, my God. If that isn't a make-you-a-man moment in that kid's life, what is? Wow. Fuck. Or, you know, adult. He has not made any further attempts, perhaps in part because of his medication. Okay. So he stayed on He's it. He's been taking it? Yeah. On the 27th of January, 2007, Katrina and Frederick Whitmore killed Joseph Durant, who was 47 years of age. This is how it happened. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, and it's Australia Day. Oh, so, you know, probably everyone's on the cans, right? Yeah, alcohol-fueled. Yeah. I think they always say in, in the media. Yeah, I believe that is the official term. So, yes, they killed Joseph Durant. Oh, so, Durant and his friend Guy Marrett had been together on Australia Day 2007. As is the custom, both had been on the piss all day, and it is clear that they were both substantially intoxicated. Shortly before 1am, the two men arrived at the driveway of the house where Durant was living on Phyllis Street in Mount Pritchard. That's in Western Sydney. Okay. Father of three, Joseph Durant lived next door to Katrina Whitmore. Ah. He was having her own Australia Day celebrations with her boyfriend, Stephen. Okay, so some sausages and lots of alcohol? Yeah. Yeah. As Durant and Merritt exited the taxi, witnesses across the road heard the two arguing about who would carry the slab. <laughs> it was a light-hearted argument, very Australian. Yeah, I've, I've had that one myself. Uh, by the way, a slab is a box of beer. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a carton. Um, I actually remember soon after I first met you, so nearly 20 years ago, uh, my friend Emily and I were bought the beer for a party you were having and then we were both trying to carry this slab with our, at the time, skinny young girly arms and had to keep, like, exchanging it to walk the two blocks. <laughs> that stuff can be kind of heavy. It really can. Yeah. As they walked down the drive with Merrick carrying the box of beer, grumble, grumble, <laughs> Katrina's dogs started to bark. One or possibly both of them reacted verbally and sufficiently loud enough to be heard by Katrina. Witnesses say they heard something like, Shut up, you bloody mongrel. Yeah. Very Australian. That's pretty innocuous. Frederick and his partner, let's call her Helen, were also there that night. So Frederick's uh, Katrina's the brother, brother. Older yes. brother. 
There are also a number of children in the house. Well, I mean, if Frederick's there, there's, well, he's there's, like the Pied Piper, but they all come from his loins. Well, that's right. Helen was in the bedroom when Katrina yelled at Durant and Merritt. Helen was able to see the kitchen, but not actually the front door itself. But she said that she saw Katrina leaving the kitchen and going to the door to go outside. She then heard Katrina and Stephen and Frederick outside. In court proceedings later, Helen agreed that there was nothing in Katrina's hands. She said that Katrina was not carrying anything. Helen heard what she described as a scuffle outside. A bit of biffo. Yeah, a little bit of Aussie day biffo. Bit of Aussie day biffo. Merritt recalled in court later that he accompanied Durant down the driveway when there was a heated exchange over the barking dogs. He said that there were some apparently insulting remarks which he could not remember, mm. but to which Durant responded, Why don't you come out here and say that, you drongo? Oh, I forgot about the word drongo. <laughs> yeah, drongo. Merritt was then suddenly hit in the back of the head. Merritt said that he turned around and was punched in the mouth, splitting his lip. He then attempted to defend himself, grabbing the other man around the top of the head, pulling him to the ground and hitting him several times in what he said was self-defence. You grab someone around the top of the head when they're punching you. Hey, look, if you got him to the ground, it obviously worked. Two minutes later, he heard Durant call out, I've been stabbed, call an ambulance. Not good. No, really not good. Like, a bit of biffo has turned real nasty. So the person Merritt was fighting was Adam Duncan. This is another guy. Okay. I'll tell you about Duncan later. All right. When Merritt looked up, he could see his drinking buddy attempt to stand up and walk towards the house, but when he got to the front porch, he collapsed. This is when Merritt let Duncan go. We let go of his head. (laughs) He had to eventually. Yeah. Ran over to his friend, jumped over him, and went inside and called an ambulance. So, okay, how's Duncan related to all of this? All right. I'm going to tell you, Okay, cool. Duncan had been attending a party at a house nearby, so he knew Katrina and Frederick. And Stephen? And Stephen. Because they're all part of the same crew. Yeah, but he was at a party down the road. Oh, yeah. So Duncan had been attending a party at a house nearby when he heard the argument about the dogs outside. He had been drinking during the evening, but had also taken amphetamines and ecstasy. He he said of that night, Mm -hmm. he said he was off his nana. Oh, okay. Well, that means he was really out of it. So he found it difficult, at least in retrospect, to know which part of his memories were fantasy or truth. Oh, that's got to hurt when you're talking to the cops. Was there a dragon? I think there was. I'm pretty sure there was a dragon, dude. Serious. I mean, I saw one. So when he heard the argument, he went outside with his friend Jamie Hughes. He said that he could hear screaming for Katrina, but he could not remember what she was saying. He said that he saw Katrina running towards the fight. He could not remember how it happened, but he remembers fighting with a man he now knows to be Marit. So, Tara, I'm going to give you this script. Yeah. Because I want you to read out the Katrina parts, all right? Oh, okay, sweet. I'm so into this. They're highlighted there for you. Yeah, thank you. He denied that he would have struck the first blow. This is Duncan. Yeah. He said that they were wrestling and punching on the ground that his friend Jamie was also involved. He knew there was another fight going on nearby. Oh, so as in like in the same yard but two different people punching on. Yeah, it's a few metres away, like five metres away. It's kind of the same biffo but different elements. Yeah. He knew there was another fight going on nearby but he did not see what was happening until he got up when the fight he was involved in stopped. So when um, 
yeah. Merritt let go of his head. When his head got released. Duncan also said that he saw Frederick and Stephen kicking the guy, meaning Durant, mm-hmm. who was moving back and saw Katrina standing behind him. He said that the man was on the ground attempting to stand up while Katrina was kicking him. He said, I'm pretty sure Katrina stabbed him in the back of the neck. And then Frederick and Stephen ran away and Katrina ran up the street behind them. He thought he saw the knife snap and the blade fall to the ground. Did the dragon grab it? Possibly the dragon grabbed it. There's a lot of conflicting witness reports here because you've got to remember they're all... Pissed as a fart. Off their nana. And off their nana. Oh, my God. This must have been so hard for the police to try and piece it together. (laughs) All right, you've got your script there? Yeah, yeah. And so let me get, like, bogany, yeah? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. In Duncan's interview with police on January 30th, 2007, he told them that he heard Katrina say as he and Jamie walked over towards Durant and Rarrett, I'll stab you in the neck personally. Though elsewhere in the interview, he quoted the words as being, You talk to me like that again, fucking dickhead, and I'll personally come around there and stab you in the neck. <laughs> Duncan also told police that at the time, Katrina was walking on sunshine and waving a knife. Oh, right. I'm pretty sure she was not walking on the sunshine. Whoa. At a later walkthrough with cops, Duncan said that Katrina had said, You ever talk to my dog like that and I'll stab you in the fucking throat? By the way, okay, I love dogs. I don't think they care if someone tells them to shut uh, up. If you, like, call, if you call a dog a mongrel, they really couldn't give yeah, a fuck, like, really. Whatever, man. I'm a dog. I'm going to bark harder at you, you fucker. Uh, by the way, I'm talking like her for the rest of my life. I like it. I like it. Following the stabbing, Duncan ran back into the house where he had been with blood running down his face and demanded the keys to his host car so he could drive home. He told her... Steve stabbed someone across the road at Greg's house. I jumped in and started hitting the guy with Steve. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Though a few days later when he spoke to police, he asserted it was Katrina who had seen stab Durant. Oh, that's not fucking true. So is it Steve? Is it... uh, Is it mm. Katrina? Is it Frederick? (sighs) Was it the dogs? Well, important independent evidence was given by Mr. and Mrs. Cross who lived diagonally opposite the driveway down which Durant and Merritt walked. Mr. Cross heard Durant and Merritt getting out of the taxi and having an argument about who was to carry the beer. He got up and looking out of the bedroom window saw the two men get out of the taxi and walk down the driveway. He heard a dog bark and one of the men told the dog to shut the fuck up. A light came on in a nearby house and some people came out. Mr. Cross thought there were about three or four of them and he heard a woman's voice swearing at the men. You fucking know. There was an exchange which peaked a few seconds later in the woman saying, I'll stab you in the fucking eye. (laughs) Mr. Cross thought it was just an argument about a dog and went back to bed. Oh, he's like, oh, it's Australia Day. Putting in my earbuds, going to sleep. Listening to some podcasts maybe. No, it's 19-something. No, it was recent. So Mr. Cross, living across the road, was one of the few people that was actually sober during this. Yeah, but he was just like, oh, Australia Day, you know, shit happens. It doesn't seem too bad. It was only later that he learnt the course of the fight ended with Durant's stabbing. Joseph Durant was killed by a knife wound inflicted in the back of his upper body. There are a number of other cuts to the front of his body, but these are all superficial. So a bit of a knife fight going on there. Mm-hmm. All the injuries, including the fatal one, were inflicted within a short time, perhaps no more than a couple of minutes or so. The fatal wound penetrated the fifth rib, 
cutting the right lung and ultimately penetrating one of the large arteries in the lung, causing massive bleeding. Yeah, that'd do it. Death resulted from impaired breathing and blood loss. So gasping for air and bleeding out, it's a horrible way to go. It's really, I mean, you know, we don't really talk about good ways to go on this yeah. show, but yeah, that's, that's pretty fucking shit, man. The question is, were they done by Katrina or Frederick? So, Tara, this is the way Katrina's brother Frederick tells it. Okay. Katrina and Stephen came out of the house to confront Mara and Durant. I followed soon after and had a knife with me. After some heated words, Stephen and I attempted to restrain Katrina, but a physical fight broke out. Then Duncan and his friends arrived at the scene, joined in on the biffo and fought with Marit. I was punched twice in the nose by Durant without warning. Well, you didn't tell him he was going to do it first? No, he didn't. Oh, where's the code of honour in that biffo, I ask you? So I lashed out and cut him with my knife during that assault, although I don't know precisely where I cut him. Right, but he admits to having a knife. He does. Frederick's account essentially was that he took the knife from the kitchen due to his concern for his sister and because he thought he might need to use it for defence. He said that he had no intention of using it offensively and only retaliated when he was hit by the victim on the nose. Twice. Without warning, without a formal invitation. No, I'm a, I am going to punch you in the nose twice. I am certainly going to punch you in the nose twice, sir. Are you ready? Are you a pugilist, yes, sir? For I am. <laughs> Frederick admits that maybe his sister had a knife too. Now, if Frederick did not inflict the fatal wound, it must have been inflicted by Katrina. Or maybe Stephen. Or maybe the dogs. Or maybe the dogs. The dogs were armed with the teeth. Yeah, and they do not like being insulted. Well, they don't like being called mongrels, do they, dogs? Uh, it offends them. Yeah. Sticks and stones may break dogs' yeah. burns. Oh, I'm poor bread. Excuse me, I'm no mongrel. <laughs> I'm wrong mongrel. Although Katrina admits her involvement was an impulsive act of fury, she stated that she perceived it to be an attack upon her dogs, which were just doing what they'd been trained to do. Yeah, again, dog don't care. With everybody blaming each other, the police charged Katrina, Stephen and Frederick with murder. Okay, well, I mean, they were the likely culprits in the whole shebang. And here's how it shook out. Alrighty. Do tell. I'm actually interested to hear what the courts are going to do with this shit. Well, on April 1st, 2009, Katrina Whitmore was found guilty of Mr Durant's murder with a New South Wales Supreme Court jury concluding she had caused the fatal stab wound. Okay. So whether she had a knife or Frederick dropped his knife uh -huh. and picked it up, or maybe Stephen passed her a knife or the dogs spat knives at her. Yeah. I, yeah. Through their butts. Later that day, her brother, Frederick, who had been due to face a separate murder trial, pleaded guilty to manslaughter. So they so they both did it in the eyes of the... Well, kind of. Stephen, who faced a joint murder trial with Katrina, was cleared of all charges. Okay. So there was enough witness statements there to say that he was actually trying to break the fight up. Right, okay. He, he wasn't trying to get involved. Oh. When handing down his sentence, Justice Adams said he found it impossible to say who had delivered the fatal stab wound. Both Katrina and Frederick must be sentenced upon the basis that one or the other of them inflicted the fatal wound, but it's not possible to say which one of them did so. Oh, I said. do like Judge Barney. <laughs> <laughs> Justice Adams said in sentencing Katrina, 
Her conduct was that of a self-indulgent, stupid anger in which she became involved in the murder of another human being whose actions, if possibly somewhat offensive, don't smack talk dogs, mm. could not possibly have justified any violence, let alone that which he was ultimately subjected. I know, it's really, it's such a shitty shame. I mean, this kind of thing goes on a lot on Australia Day and it generally doesn't end in a stabbing. If only no one had a knife, this could have just cleaned out in the wash, you know? Frederick Whitmore patted his sister's knee as her sentence was read to the court and she started to cry. Stephen was also weeping as she was led from the dock. Katrina Megan Whitmore was sentenced to a non-parole period of 10 years imprisonment. Frederick Rayon Whitmore was sentenced to a non-parole period of four years. His middle name's Rayon? Yeah. Like the fabric that like, like people fabric. don't like much. I love Rayon. Really? In what capacity? I don't. <laughs> you don't even know Yeah, Yeah, you go going there, didn't I? Um, yeah, so hard. Mr Durant's father stood as the sentences were revealed. He later told reporters he was outraged by the jail terms. It's not a lot even combined for taking away someone's loved one. I think the sentences were too light, a teary Mr Durant said. These days, there's people going out using a knife. In my day, if you had a fight with someone, you had a fight, went inside and had a drink with them. Amen. Yeah, have a bit of beer for and then have nah, a drink afterwards You together. end up great mates. Yeah. You, like, you just punch it out a little bit, maybe scream some obscenities, and then you're like friends. Look, I've done that to my kids. They've, they've, they've had well, a bit not of a fight. Ex- oh, right, sorry. And, and, and I've said, now, now shake hands. <laughs> I'm angry that the aggressive, senseless actions of these offenders took the life of a light-hearted larrikin. Yeah, we do need more of those in the world. He also said, There is now a stigma attached to us. When someone in your family is murdered, it is assumed you are bad people. See, I didn't... I, I would never think that, but... I think people just don't know what to say. Well, you know, also maybe they think because, you know, it was like yeah. a drunken thing and there was a fight and maybe they think he had it coming. But, like, I mean, God, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners agree that we wouldn't think that way about someone. Well, Durant's father went on to say that as a religious family, we don't want revenge. All we want is justice. He said his son's life had been taken all over a barking dog. Yes, Which seriously. seems just ludicrous, doesn't it? It really is ludicrous. It's ridiculous. The defence and the Crown lodged separate appeals against the sentence. So both of them, both sides thought, no. Right, okay. (laughs) Both appeals were dismissed. Okay, they were like, this is as close as we're going to get to the justice we can do from this fucking schmozzle. So Frederick's actually out now. He's paroled. Okay. He's done his four years. Uh, Katrina's still in jail. She won't get out until 2019 next year. Okay. Yeah, a lot of these stupid fights are over just alcohol field nights and... Ah, over nothing. And you know what? So many of them happen and nothing much happens. But yeah, this was really tragic. Well, life being taken, you know, he was a father of three and... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, damn. Awful stuff. So, um, Tara. Yes, Barney? What is Aussie as? Well, Aussie as... Are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Actually, I'm, I've, I've got some place to be. Can, okay. you, can you make it quick? They're always quick. What's your problem, man? You got a problem with this? You got a problem with my funny Australian stories? Shut <laughs> up, you bloody mongrel. <laughs> you carry the slab. 
<laughs> what if we both carry it half a block and then our like skinny fucking little yeah, girly your, arms? Your drop girly it. arms can't carry a slab. Oh no, can my they? girly arms now are less skinny and far stronger. But you know, when oh, I was really? about twenty, that was a different story or yeah. late teens. Anyway. A man and a woman who were taken into police custody for public drunkenness have been spotted having sex in the back of a paddy wagon while being driven to a Northern Territory police station. Oh, wow. Saucy. You like where this is going? Saucy. Oh, God damn, yeah. Where's Sexy Barney when you need him? Hey, baby, want to get in the back of my paddy wagon? <laughs> Sorry, that's my line. <laughs> Stepping in for you. 18-year-old Hannah Walker, probably nicknamed Hannah, was driving behind the Divi van and was very surprised to see the couple rooting in the back when she pulled up behind them at a red light. So let's just rewind a little. Hannah was driving towards the city when she stopped at the traffic lights outside Darwin High School and saw the lusty crims making out about 5pm on a Wednesday. Good time to do it. Good time to do it. Swear by it. Yeah. She said... Oh, I saw two people kissing and thought, geez, in the back of a paddy wagon, they're keen. Hanno said that when she stopped at the next set of traffic lights behind the police car again, the couple were playing adult frogger. <laughs> That's right, Barney. They were knocking boots, banging, boinking, boning, humping, making the beast with two backs. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? I do. <laughs> oh, it was a red light and I had to sit behind the paddy wagon for a few minutes, she said. I couldn't believe it when I saw them just going for it. There was a woman laying on the floor and a man on top. They had clothes on, but from their movements, you could tell they were having sex. I could see the officer in the side mirrors and he had no idea what was going on. Hanno followed the police car until it turned down Mitchell Street towards the cop shop. Senior Sergeant Daniel Sheen said police were not aware of any shagging gobbies or rumpy-pumpy going on in the paddy wagon. <laughs> rumpy-pumpy. Do you want me to uh, do that again with more R? It was pretty good. All right. He said, uh, I have spoke with the members involved and they said they did see the couple kissing but did not see any nudity or anything to indicate they were engaged in coitus. Coitus is such a good word. <laughs> <laughs> but he did add that it's difficult for police to see everything that goes on in the back and encouraged anyone who witnesses any horizontal refreshment taking place in the back of a paddy wagon to please film it so the rest of us can take a gander. No, no, he didn't actually. Um, he went all buzzkill and, and said to call the cops. <laughs> Divi van sex tape uncut. You're getting laid in the back of a divi van. <laughs> you know, Tara, I'm feeling a little bit parched. You know what I need? A little bit of horizontal refreshment. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a little bit hangry. I think I might need myself some horizontal refreshment, baby. Hey, baby. Horizontal refreshment could certainly quench my thirst. What about this? Hey, baby. Horizontal refreshment? Question mark, smiley face. Hashtag soon. <laughs> you're, you're fucked, aren't you? Yeah, I know. I need, to, I need, What's I need, the fucking I, I say, I need to get better friends. <laughs> yeah, but you're not capable, are you? I'm quite capable uh, of making new friends. Yeah, and yet here I am. Hey, my mum thinks I'm nice. No, we've been over this before. But she doesn't, though. No, she doesn't. <laughs> she does not. 
So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink. I'm parched. Yeah, you need some horizontal refreshment, Barney. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a PayPal donate <laughs> button there too. Um, and you know what? We had some donations, didn't oh, we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we got a, a lovely um, little beer tab there from Lauren. And I believe she's done some cross-stitch for you. She's made a shit-in-a-bucket cross-stitch for me. I'm so excited. <gasps> I can't wait to see it. It's going on that wall right near your head, I, by the way. I think it should just go over my face as a mask forever because that's <laughs> awesome. She said she tried to do one of Pop Pop for me, but it just like had a bit of a fail. Thank you so much, Lauren. You're Thanks, Lauren. so great. And, and we love you. And your baby's so beautiful. And we want you to stay awesome and weird too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some more bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, a.k.a. The Fam Bam, if you wanna. Follow us on Twitter and Snapshit and Insta. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Okay, I so enjoyed doing Broken Voice today. Did you like Did it? you like that? Yeah, did you like doing it too? Yeah, it was fun. Oh, Barney, don't say that to my fucking dog. You fucking can't. <laughs> like, seriously, if you really lean into it, it can end up just being gibberish. No. It's like, oh, I'm going to send you on the line. Oh, fuck off, you bloody mongrel. Oh, you stinking bastard. Oh, you stinking bastard. Love you guys. Hey, sweetie. They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. I thought you were the chicken pusher. Oh, my God, I thought I ran out of poo stories. I have another one. Have we not told this poo story? Oh, maybe we have. About the chicken going under the door? I thought we'd told it, but I don't know. As no. Barney was, was, was doing, well, what he does when poo stories are involved, and someone shoved a live chicken under the door. Because Australia. Well, my, my friend who I was living with, Dan Lee, uh, he, he would always talk to me in the backyard when I was on the crapper, and I just looked... Look, man, just don't talk to me. I just, I'm concentrating on my poo. I don't want to be interrupted. And you know what he did? He said, That's fine, Barney. That's fine. He went away, got a live chicken, shoved it under the door. It went, it went mental. Makes sense. And that poo just went straight back up into my body. Uh, so much for us having a, an episode without a Barney Pooh story. Yeah, I don't there think you go. there is such a thing. Uh, I thought I'd run out, but there no. was another one. <laughs> You've never run out. <laughs> Not ever. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.